Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 18, One Does Not Simply Bararum. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. So here we are at chapter four, book three, and in this chapter, Merry and Pippin have entered Fangorn Forest, and as they attempt to make their way through the forest, they encounter, well, they encounter Fangorn, or Treebeard, as he's otherwise known, an Ent, and Merry and Pippin talk to him about what's going on in the wider world, as well as what's going on over in Isengard, neighbor to Fangorn Forest. And Treebeard summons the Ents to have a discussion about what Saruman is doing. By the end of the chapter, the Ents have decided to take action, and they march off to war. So I think the the good place, the good place to start, I think a good place to start is just by talking about what Ents are, uh, because it seemed like there were maybe some different ideas about what is an Ent. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's not a, a, a tree with a face. That's what we learned very quickly. <laughs> Unlike what they show you in the movies. I think it's like, it's much like there are definitely some very humanoid features of the Ents. Like, did you guys, what did you guys think of the smooth arms? Did you guys think that, oh. that was referring to like a, like a branch? Basically, like it, that it, is it like a metaphor for like them having like branches, but like very smooth branches as arms? Or are we talking like bicep, like arm? army arms just like a trogdor arm (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't entirely clear on this i went back and forth while i was reading the chapter between like i was just trying to like get it right so part like sometimes i would think of it as like oh it's like a tree-ish arm and then sometimes i was thinking of like a trogdor arm I'm trying not to laugh because you'll hear the echo. So this is another episode where Wanda and Navi are in the same room. So if I laugh, you're going to hear the echo. But oh my God, Trogdor arm tree beer. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's just amazing. No, I thought it was uh, in reading the description. I kind of imagined like the stereotypical nerdy child playing a tree in the second grade play where it's just like weird little stick arms that are covered in brown tights right and the rest of him's like a cardboard body that's been painted to look like bark and that sort of like general shape with weird shoes sticking out at the bottom yeah i almost feel like this is like like tolkien put this description in here to try and make sure that they would never make a movie (laughs) Because this would be so hard to make into a movie. (laughs) 
It's funny, like, as a side note, I, I think I noticed this about something else that he was describing in this chapter, but given, like, how much description Tolkien does, I feel like I don't have a very clear picture from his descriptions of what things are supposed to look like. Like, both in terms of locations and also in this case, where I'm just like, what is this thing you are envisioning? Right. Please give me an illustration. I have no idea what this is. Right. Yeah, we need, we need that's why he needs that guy. Alan Lee, or yeah. <laughs> the guy that illustrated it. Yeah. Do we have any Alan Lee pictures of ants? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, he also like did the paintings that inspired yeah. the movie, so presumably it would look pretty much like what we saw in the movies of Treebeard. Right. But that's just like a tree with a face. This is very distinctively like not a tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These descriptions are kind of like, they look a lot like trees, but let's be clear, they fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Alan Lee read the description and was like, that's horrifying. I'm not drawing that. Yes, We're going to give a tree a face. It seems like Tolkien wrote it to be like really uncanny. And then like Weta Workshop or whatever was like, we're going to have to change this up significantly. Yeah. I'm also curious what your sense is, not just of what the Ents look like, but also what the Ents are in terms of the role that they seem to play in this world, right? Because they are clearly a race of people they talk about being woken from the trees by elves but then they they reproduce right they're not just trees that have been given life but now they can reproduce they can have children um at least in theory and so they are their own race but they seem to be much more symbiotic was the word i used um and i'm curious kind of what your sense was of that and like what role they play in this particular forest. I guess like it didn't strike me as a race in this world as we've seen the other races being. Um, it, it was more like almost a personification of this forest. I don't, it's hard to say what he was going for here because we get a lot of description of either trees kind of becoming ant-like or ants becoming more tree-like. And that really was confusing because can any tree become an ant? Like, can they all be ants? <laughs> like, and, yeah. and they can't reproduce, so how are these trees becoming ant-like? I don't really understand. Yeah, it's like ants have the power to turn trees into new ants um, if they work on them enough. <laughs> but they don't, right? They need the ant wives to have ant children to like technically make new ants yeah. i guess that is a question that i never like really articulated to myself when i was reading this because uh yeah like they say like Treebeards has at one point like trees are becoming entish but that's never pitched as a solution which brings us back to the question of do the ants fuck <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean they need the ant wives to have ant things <laughs> But like, or, do they I mean, literally do, do, fuck? Do they literally fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I I kind of feel like the answer might be yes because there isn't really any indicator of like, oh, why we need the Entwives is because they contribute something to the the environment or to the forest that makes more trees turn into Ents because. It's, in fact, very specifically, like, no, when little ant babies are born, they're saplings. They're new. They're not, like, full-grown trees that just start walking around. They're 
babies. And like the other way that you could think of it is like like unfortunately we've raised the cursed question of whether the ants fuck, <laughs> but it it could be that like far from needing them in a biological sense, the ants need ant wives to reproduce just because they they need um like in a in a traditional way like they need like a feminine or like a matriarchal presence. Or- but what would the purpose be of the ant wives being like attractive? Like, Treebeard is attracted to this particular ant wife. And, I mean, attraction is a purely, well, like, he, biological, he, sexual thing. He remembers thing. he's attracted to her. Sorry for crossdog. He remembers <laughs> that he's attracted to her after, like, a thousand years or something. And he's like, I thought I should go see her again. So I walked a hundred leagues to the Brownlands and she was gone. I texted like, her, you up. <laughs> You're so late. <laughs> She's moved on. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like to go back to this question of like whether the ants are a race or not, which I think is an interesting question. It sounds almost like they had like a false start of like becoming a race where they had some some family style relationships <laughs> for a while. And then they the ants and the ant wives grew apart. And now there's now they're not really a race anymore. Isn't it kind of weird that he specifically gives us this concept of, like, ants and female ants, but doesn't do that with the orcs? He's just like, no, all orcs are dudes, and I will not tell you how they reproduce. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it seems very deliberately like he's trying to explain that they fuck, and that's where the ant children come from. And this gets to, like, one of the most salient points in this chapter, which is, like, the virgin troll, the Chad end. <laughs> um, there's this, like, that, that whole paragraph where Treebird is like, yeah, the trolls are, like, a, a corruption of what the Ents are, but they can't really do anything that we that we do. Yeah, they can't, like, take keg stands yeah. like we can. <laughs> Thing unnecessary thing we learned about Treebeard in this chapter is that he is a great chugger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Treebeard's his energy when they like he picks up Mary and Pippin, he finds them and he brings them to his home. And then the first thing he does is he shotguns a bowl of ant wash, (laughs) and then he tells them to sit on the table, and then he invites them to lie on the floor while he lies in bed. Which he can't lie down in because he's not bendable. So he just goes timber into his bed. There's like a long description of this happening. (laughs) There's so many fantastic mental images from these chapters. And and just falling directly into bed. (laughs) The real question is, how does he get back up again? I don't know. What does that look like? Give me the reverse process, Tolkien. Yeah, he does he have a rope? <laughs> I mean, he must have legs. But they can't bend. He's not bendy. But, like, he walks, right? So there must be some joint somewhere. He must have at least one joint. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the wind blows him up. I feel like we were not intended to analyze this with this level of biological scrutiny. (laughs) (laughs) And he has to get up in order to go to sleep. It's never really explained why he has a bed. Yeah, Uh, he sleeps standing up. Yeah, he he sleeps like a tree with his arms raised above his head and he takes in the rain. Which I thought was really beautiful, actually. He's very adorable. Like, he's... 
everything about him is so endearing. Yeah. Well, and I think that's maybe a good way to get us to the next thing we had wanted to talk about, which is why we like the Ents, because I think we all came out of this going, yeah, we like these guys. They're weird, but they seem like they'd be fun to hang out with. They are great. And I mean, I think that ties into the question a little bit of like what the Ents are, right? Like, and, and what their whole reason for being is. I guess I came into this chapter with like the preconceived notion that the Ents are supposed to take care of the trees. Um, but like you were saying, like a minute ago, the relationship seems to kind of go more ways than that. Like when they're talking about how the Ents, um, eventually like drifted apart from the Ent wives, it was in part because the Ents just wanted to spend so much time, like, like talking to the trees, which is like their major hobby. Like they like doing it. Is that the impression that you guys got too? It's kind of like what we were talking about the other day, where, like, as as people just, like, get older, they pick a hobby to just care way too much about. Yeah, it's like my uncle is, like, really into hydroplanes. Like, that's the, the vibe that I got, like, <laughs> reading about the Ents and, and how much they're interested in the trees. I kind of read it as there's a difference, right, between a gardener and a shepherd. And... I don't think of the Ents as gardeners. I think of them as shepherds, where they understand that the trees, or at least to them, the trees all have individual personalities and a sense of, oh, it's not just like any tree. It's, oh, yeah, that one like was really sick three winters ago, and I'm really glad that they made it and are now like growing and healthy. And that sort of level of attachment, right, of understanding that in the group, in the flock, as it were, all of these individuals have their own lives. And maybe they're not as sort of aware as the Ents are, but they're still living and still sort of have their own kind of sentience. Yeah, I I don't know. I have no answer for the question of what is their purpose, but I do have kind of a thought on why they're so endearing. Um and I think it like part of it is because even though they're clearly like very old and they've been in this forest for a really long time, they have this kind of sense of like wonder at everything around them, like the way that they talk about language and the way they talk about like the forest around them it's almost like they it's like a child like being like oh like it's so nice how this thing is you know and even in treebeard's interactions with mary and pippin like even though he doesn't know what they are and he's kind of suspicious of them at first like his na- his almost his natural inclination is just to be like i like you <laughs> and and it's um, it's like i in return i was like i like you too treebeard <laughs> Yeah, a very friendly vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that part of that is not just that they're really friendly and that they are likable in that way, but also they feel like adults is maybe the wrong word to use, but given the way we've seen other nations and other groups of people and other people in power in particular respond with a very like, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Or I don't see why I should have to do anything about this 
kind of attitude to being told about what's going on in the world. The fact that Treebeard sits there and goes, wow, okay, I had thought that maybe this wasn't my affair, but I see that I really can't pretend that it isn't going to impact me and that we could just not do anything doesn't sit right with me. So let me bring my people together and we will talk about this and we will figure out what we can do because I know that we have to do something. And that was just so fucking refreshing. (laughs) I think there's also something really nice about the idea that these Ents are like really strong and powerful, but they don't really do anything with that. Unless they yeah. have to, you know, they they could be a source of great power in this world if they wanted to. But instead, they're like, no, that's not for me. Like, my job mm-hmm. is to stay here in the forest and be with the trees. And I'm happy doing that. And there's no sense of, like, ambition to do or be more than what they are. And I think compared with everything else that we've seen, except for maybe the hobbits, the hobbits are kind of like the ants in that way. But um, compared to, like, the men and the orcs and the wizards and stuff, like, it it is refreshing to kind of get that just, I like life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they also don't have an expiration date, right? The ants don't don't die or they have very, very long lives. I guess it's like a tree, right? Like, a tree could die. Like, it could get struck by lightning or something. Right. But it also could not. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not really explained, like, why the, the elves kind of have... Um, the elves are different than the Ents when it comes to, like, their ambitions in the world. The, the elves tend to, like, they, they've got complex on top of complex, as we've, <laughs> like, already discussed at length in the, on the pod. But the Ents seem to be, like, suddenly, like, they found themselves to be, like, living trees among non- or, like, sentient trees among non-sentient trees. And it seems like they're just trying to figure out what that means. Um, rather than trying to accrue some sort of power. They're just like, wow, what the fuck? (laughs) Let's figure this out. (laughs) Well, this is new. (laughs) Can I make this tree into into an end? That's just going to be my hobby forever. I'm going to let my wife go by the wayside. (laughs) Doesn't really matter to me. Um, but I think that there's like, isn't, doesn't there seem to be kind of a connection between the fact that they let the ant wives drift away from them and with the ant wives, really their only hope for having children, like, doesn't that seem to connect with the relative lack of ambition that they have? Yeah. It's interesting to think about this idea of like trees being given the power of like speech and, and sentience and like inherently you know, when we think about your biological desire to propagate your your right. race, like, maybe they just don't have that because they, like, didn't come from that. So there's no, like, sense of, oh, we have to make more ends so that we survive because there's no biological link for them in terms of how they were made. They don't have parents. So yeah. So they don't see a need to become parents. But even at a more intrinsic, like, not even thought about level, like... Every other race is like, we got to make more of us. <laughs> and and it's, it's not like a conscious desire, right? right? It's just something that's inherently biological. But like, that's, they were kind of magically given life. It's not biological. Right. They seem like they're, they are, they are kind of like trapped in this in-between zone where they have, uh, 
they have a, a thing that they spend all of their time on, which is like shepherding the forest, but they don't seem to see it as like an essential duty or mission, because otherwise it seems like they might be really focused on propagating themselves so that they're to ensure their to ensure the world against the possibility that they would die out and there was no one to do their job, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Ashani, what do you think? I keep coming back to something that was said just a couple minutes ago, this idea of what does it mean that they're so long lived? Because I almost wonder if you know you have centuries, if you know you maybe have millennia, why would you worry about propagation at the same rate that other species do, right? Like we see that with animals that the ones that have really short lifespans tend to have or tend to reproduce both sort of on a more frequent scale and have like larger numbers of children. And then sort of the bigger, the longer lived, the less in danger you are as a species, the less frequently you have babies because you don't need to have babies as often. We see it with the elves too, right? The elves aren't having huge families. The elves mostly have like one or two kids and then they are done because they don't need to have huge families. Yeah, although with the elves, there's kind of that like natural transition to for like when they go to the Grey Havens and sail away, where it's like, all right, now I left behind some more elf kids to take my place. But it's hard to imagine like where the Ents would go. But we know where the Ents go, right? The Ents basically go tree-ish. Yeah. Because that's what Treebeard says. He's like, oh, there are two other Ents in the forest who are part of like the first Ents. And one of them... A lot of his trees were burned down or cut down by orcs, and he's basically gone up into the mountains and he's not coming back. And the other one is here, but has basically gone full tree and can't really be roused anymore, or at least is roused only very, very infrequently. So, you know, that's the equivalent of going to the Grey Havens, right, is that when you decide you're done, you settle yourself down and you grow roots. Yeah, it's interesting because we also, when, you know, back in the early chapters in the Shire, in Tom Bombadil's forest, we got some descriptions of trees as, like, vaguely sentient or, like, having feelings. And it kind of begs the question, like, is this kind of unique to Fangorn and the presence of Ents? Are there Ents in the other forest? Like, what is this, what is Tolkien intending us to feel about trees in this world? That's a really good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is Wanda going to say more? No? <laughs> I mean, I have some thoughts on, like, there's a very interesting differentiation where uh, Treebeard says, yeah, like the old forest, but the darkness here is worse. But he also is very clear that it's part of the Ents' job to manage the darkness, right? And manage the darkness that sometimes grows in the heart of trees and that can lead them to basically be malevolent. And 
And there's that really clear distinction between, like, Tom Bombadil is master of the old forest, but he is not cleaning house. Like, he is letting that forest do whatever it wants, and so it's turned into this sort of malevolent thing. Whereas Fangorn, because the Ents are there sort of actively caretaking, is dangerous, but not malevolent. So what is the, like, so the darkness that grows in trees is like a is like a treeish ambition to take over the world, right? More or less. <laughs> I don't even know that it's always that much. I think sometimes like certainly that's kind of what we saw in the old forest. I I wonder if here this close to Isengard and closer certainly to Mordor, it's more just about wanting to do harm to others, right? Or or being more prone to sort of looking on them with suspicion or violence rather than like Treebeard meets these creatures in the forest and he's like, oh, I'm glad you told me you weren't orcs because I would have smashed you. But since you're not orcs, like, let's be friends. Yeah, it's hard to know whether like the the trees are just kind of malevolent or if they're responding to what is happening to them. Because in both the Old Forest and in Fangorn, like, there is some external entity that is cutting down trees or, like, you know, wishing harm upon trees in some way. Right. And so I don't know if, like, the, the evil, the, not even evil, but, like, the, the response to that is the trees, like, lashing out and being angry. Mm-hmm. Or if there is some, like, kind of malevolence there. It seems like the innate state of the forest the old forest or Fangorn is that in response to uh, creatures like coming in and trying to destroy it, the trees are like, we're going to fight back. We're going to kill you. Um, And if anything, like what the ants are doing is actually like uh, changing the way that the forest relates to the outside, like being like, we're going to, we're going to tame the inclination of the forest to be aggressive or aggressively defensive Rather than having that kind of forest, we're going to we're going to basically be the liaison between the forest and the outside world by taking care of the trees and also making sure that the wizards and the elves and the humans or whatever don't come in and destroy the I don't know the balance. Yeah, although I think that the elves is an interesting case because like Lorien is also a forest, right? Mm-hmm. Lothlorien is in a forest, and Rivendell is kind of also in a foresty place. Yeah, and they seem to be normal forests like we don't really hear anything about the trees there and i wonder if it's because of the way that the elves interact with the trees is like a more respectful relationship or the elves just like the power of the elves subdues the trees maybe yeah yeah it puts it into a really interesting light then though thinking about this idea that the ents are like a liaison between the forest and sort of bipedal entities of any race that the Ents then make that decision to go marching off on Isengard because it really then feels like they're doing that because that's part of their job as the interface between the trees and the rest of the world Uh, can you still not I mean your your audio was coming through okay it was just like the visual was like (laughs) (laughs) well I'll, I'll, I don't know what to say. You weren't very bendable. <laughs> I'm never very bendable. Yeah, me neither. That was a very relatable thing that Treebeard did. 
Schubert does a lot of relatable stuff, I think. Yeah. Like, he's like, whom, whom, I'm so angry. We have to go march off immediately. Uh, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> I did love that moment where he was just, like, all riled up. And he was like, uh, maybe not right now. <laughs> I got to think about this a little bit more. <laughs> okay, on the topic of, like... Like, this thing that Treebeard always says that's everybody knows from the movies, right? Which is, don't be hasty. We don't like to be hasty. That's just kind of a quirky thing that Treebeard says in the films. That's I don't think it's they really go into it very much. But in, the, in this chapter, um, they go into it in depth. And he's like, your language is hasty. Like, I think at one point, like, when he's first talking to Mary and Pippin, they refer to the thing that Treebeard is standing on as a hill. And he's like, ah, that's too hasty to describe this as a hill. <laughs> um, and... And then later you learn more about, like, the Entish language, and um, you learn that it, in Entish, everything, every, like, everything has a name that contains the entire history of that thing. And I thought, like, from a linguistic perspective, that was really interesting, since Tolkien was a linguist, and, like, it seems like part of what he's talking about here is, like, how, um, like, English is, like, a sort of, like, an action-oriented language, in that it, it, um, it uses, like, adverbs and adjectives and verbs to modify nouns and describe things. And so it's like a very, it's like a very active language and that's how you end up communicating with other people as opposed to Entish, which is like, here's a long name for every single thing. Mm -hmm. I think at one point he says, um, like if it's not worth spending the time to say the thing, then it's not worth saying. Right. Which I really love as an idea. I, I got the weirdest sense that Treebeard was like Tolkien, like inserting himself as a character in his mm. story. Because the way that he describes certain things about the language, like, I could feel the linguist coming through so, so clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Treebeard is like, the thing about me is that I am a semi-autician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got the sense that, like, Tolkien was like, I want to say these things about language. Like, I have these thoughts. Right. And I'm going to just write this character in that has a similar relationship with language so that I can, like, get these what I feel are very important thoughts about it into the into this narrative. Yeah. It's interesting that hasty is the word that gets used to describe that phenomenon, right? Or that distinction, that difference between the way that the hobbits use language and the Ents use language. Well, what I thought was interesting about it was that fundamentally, I don't think that the Ents behave that much differently than humans when it comes to actually talking about things or taking action, right? Like there's the, at first it seems like they're going to, because you see the ants gather at the ant moot and they take a long time to say hi. And they take a long time to decide to add hobbits to the list of things. They have this <laughs> side note. Um, I thought this was really wonderful that like ants have like this mental list <laughs> described in like a poem that they can recite like the alphabet of like everything that exists in the world from like elves down onto like Buffalo rabbits and they they have like a long period during their meeting where they just decide to add hobbits which front of actually like like it's supposed to be kind of funny but like i totally get it like if you wanted to like add a new thing like think about like how much time we'd like astronomers 
take to decide to add like a planet yeah. <laughs> system of planets like yeah and then eventually like they do decide to like take action and march on isengard like relatively quickly so it's not actually that they're very different it's just that they the ends like perceive everybody else as moving faster i just thought it was so funny that like they have this giant list of like that they reference and then like the hobbits show up and they're like 404 file not found like <laughs> <laughs> You know what it reminded me of is every time that marine biologists are just like, we found some weird shit at the bottom of the ocean again. (laughs) You will not believe this octopus. (laughs) (laughs) They're excited to add like a new thing too. It's not like they're being conservative. I think that like figuring out whether there's like a new kind of tree is, like, their favorite thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what we do, too, right? Like, when we discover a new thing that nobody has seen before, like, we give it a name. Like, we give it its species name. And so it's not totally different from that idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, like, ants seem, like, actually, like, very humanoid in a lot of ways. And they're not, they're not even, like, very, I don't think they're very slow-moving, fundamentally, but they seem to, like, their, their perception of reality seems to be like, kind of askew a little bit compared to the bipeds. So I remember when I, like, first read this chapter a long time ago, and I, like, read about the end moot and everything, and at that time I was like, damn, this is taking a really long time. And then, like, and then I obviously watched the movies a bunch of times, and in the movies this scene is way different, right? Like, right. they're taking forever, and Mary and Pippin are the ones that are like, let's get going. Yeah. And, and that doesn't happen here. Like, they just wait. They waited out, and three days later, the ants are like, cool, we decided. Yeah. Um, and I, reading it again, I was like, wait, this is, like, a much less contentious and weird thing. Like, yeah, three days seems like a good amount of time to have a global summit about the sh- future of your species. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they're deciding whether they're going to, like, go do something that could be the end of them. Yeah. Maybe take some time. That doesn't seem unreasonable. Meanwhile, you've got, like, the United States Congress being like, whom, whom, $600. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a really good point, though. Like, they are making a big decision. And for them to account for really, you know, thinking about, oh, and language takes into account the history of a thing going back from the very beginning and, like, they are making a decision that is potentially going to end those centuries of history for them and their species and all of that that they remember that maybe nobody else does because they're the ones who live in Fangorn and they're like, okay, well, but this is important. Yeah. What's funny about it is that, like, do you guys remember in the movies, like, yeah, like you're saying, Navia, they spend like a third of the two towers deliberating <laughs> about whether <laughs> the ants are going to do anything. And then finally, like, yes, we're going to war. And then as they march out into, like, into, like, the, the basin of Isengard, Treebridge just casually, like, the last march of the ants. <laughs> we're all going to die. And, and that, but, like, that's never actually, like, described while they're deliberating. So, like, Mary and Pippin are like, why are you taking so long to, to like, deliberate? And it's, it's actually because they are deciding to, like, obliterate their entire race. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm actually really, really sad that the speech that he gives at the end about marching to their doom is not in the movies, because one of my favorite moments in the movies is the speech that Theoden gives 
uh, just before they ride out on Pelennor Fields, and oh, yeah. and he so like good. gives this speech about riding to your doom, and and then like they all shout like death as they ride out on the field, and it's like yeah, <laughs> it's like this most incredible moment, and you're like oh my god, how do you decide to do this, you know? It's so good. And then so good. and then to have that moment like robbed from the Ents who are doing a much bigger thing actually, because this is their entire race. This isn't just like one town that decided to go do this right this is it there's no more ants if they if they all die they can't find their damn wives like and and like that idea is so much actually more poignant than the men of rohan marching and i'm not like sad that that scene is included in the movie but i'm sad this one isn't because it feels like something got robbed from this like really beautiful moment of the ants deciding to do the right thing potentially to their and to the doom of their race. Right. Well, what he says, can I, can I read this? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, likely enough it is that we're going to our doom, the last march of the ants. And that part is in the movies. And then he goes on, but if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has long been growing in our hearts. And that is why we are marching now. That is, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, I think like what what's interesting to kind of go back to what we were talking about about like how the ants have this like purpose to serve as like kind of keeping the forest from being like becoming this dark collective mind with like a with evil in its heart. The ants are basically saying, well, like it maybe like maybe that's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but it's better than what would happen to the forest if we stuck around and didn't fight back. So it's almost like they're just deciding we are going to get rid of ourselves because, like, we are we're sort of outdated as an institution or not really. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Like, I didn't read it as like, oh, we're going off to like definitely get rid of ourselves. He was like, well, I would love for us to survive, but we're probably not. Like, we're facing overwhelming odds. But it's not about the death. It's about why they're sacrificing themselves because what they're protecting is important enough that it's worth it. Yeah, it's like if if like worst case scenario we all die and the forest returns to being like a wild and dark place and that's probably not great but best case scenario we defeat Saruman yeah. and we get to go back to doing what we've always been doing. It's not a casual yeah. throwing away of their lives, right? Like Right. I mean, clearly they've deliberated on it. I do like that they deliberate on it also. This is one of the very few glimpses into an actual planning process and meeting that we see in this series. Um, but yeah, I I think there's something more meaningful to the idea that they all sat down and they were like, listen, this could be the end. And then they were like, but we got to do it. it. It's more meaningful than if they just hastily marched out and were like, let's go to Isengard. Right. That truly would be hasty. Yeah. Yeah. To which I can only say, A, make Treebeard king of Gondor, <laughs> and B, I f- think it's really hard not to read about the Ents and their decision and look back at the elves, and particularly the elves of Lorien, and feel very ungenerous towards them. Because that was the other thing that kind of happened to me was I read about the Ents and they're sitting there going, this is our way of life. And we recognize that we might have to give it up. 
because we could stay here and just sort of lock ourselves away and we would probably fade away with time anyways, or we could go and do something and maybe make a difference. And man, the Lorian elves made the other decision, didn't they? To consciously like fade away with time. Mm-hmm. And to not take action, right? Recognizing that the world is changing and maybe not for the better. And they're like, all right, well, peace. Like, guess that's it. We'll just kind of fade out and and let it be. And we're not going to try and make it better for those who might survive us. We'll just go to this other world that we've been secreting away. <laughs> yeah, this has always been sort of an option for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was this cool thing that I was reading last week. I was reading um, Tolkien's letters. So Tolkien's writing about the elves, and he says they wanted to have their cake and eat it, to live in the mortal uh, historical Middle-earth because they'd become so fond of it, and because perhaps uh, they there had the advantages of being a superior caste. And so the elves tried to stop its change in history, stop its growth, keep it as a pleasance, even largely a desert, where they could be quote-unquote artists, and they were overburdened with sadness and nostalgic regret. Um... So, which I thought was interesting because, like, we've been having this conversation on and off about, like, what's the deal with, like, races in The Lord of the Rings having a hierarchy? And it seems like here he's, like, in these letters, he's basically saying, yeah, there is a hierarchy, but the hierarchy is problematic, right? Like, the elves are maintaining this artificially, and then, like, as soon as it becomes impossible to maintain it any further, they just peace. They're like, ah, nah. Yeah, actually, the line just before what you started reading literally says, but the elves are not wholly good or in the right. Yeah. Which I think it's easy to think of the elves as like Tolkien's little baby race that he was just like, yay, this is the perfect race. But I I think (laughs) he actually acknowledges that it is much more complicated than that. And I I was reading another fantasy series recently that had uh, a similar, like, breakdown of everybody was human but um there were like kind of inherent genetic differences between the casts like some Mm. people were just genetically stronger some people were you know able to do magic and other people's weren't were not and like just the way that hierarchy forms in their caste system and becomes inherently cruel just because of the advantages that some people have that others don't yeah um I think, like, that is also not fully fleshed out in this narrative, but it's there underlying it. Yeah. Yeah, like, the the differences that kind of become cast mm-hmm. eventually. Right. And it makes me glad, honestly, that the Ents really clearly differentiate themselves from the Elves, because they could... Tolkien could have said, like, here are the Ents and the Elves created them, and so... The Ents are now, like, very fanatically loyal or only have good things to say. And the reality is that Treebeard actually pretty accurately assesses what's going on in Lorien and doesn't really pull his punches about how he describes, like, oh, yeah, well, they're sort of shutting themselves off and things have changed now for the elves there. And I think that helps in within the text making it clear that like oh okay the elves aren't perfect and the elves aren't necessarily it doesn't mean they're all to be feared because so far we've seen sort of the hobbits really idolizing the elves we've seen some of the groups of men 
be very skeptical or even a little fearful of them, thinking of like the Rohirrim. And here we maybe get the least biased perspective in some ways, the one that feels the most balanced, or at least it did to me. And I don't know if it did to you guys too. Yeah. Again, going back to that idea of like, it felt like Tolkien was inserting himself as a character into the narrative and giving us the like, what's what in Middle Earth <laughs> through, <laughs> through Treebeard. Here's the 411. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Treebeard's 411. XOXO, J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Um, yeah. Gossip tree. Gossip tree. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, and okay, speaking of gossip, I want to hear your hot takes on what you think happened to the Entwives. (laughs) Where they be? (laughs) I think the Entwives did what all women want to do, and they went off and they made Crone Island. (laughs) The Entwives went full gone girl. (laughs) Right. I'm not a cool endwife. The endwives uh, were interested in like agriculture and farming. It sounds like, and it's weird because that it sort of implies that they they um, to the degree that the ants sometimes forget about why they should probably propagate themselves to ensure the continuation of their work. The endwives almost kind of like go too much in the other direction, and that they're they're super interested in kind of like. Um, making the land work the way that they want it to work and developing like kind of methods of agriculture and changing like the number of species that there are like they're they're really advanced farmers but it seems like they're they're hyper interested in terraforming the world and securing a legacy whereas the ants are kind of not like that at all as in all relationships the ants are philosophers and the ant wives get shit done (laughs) (laughs) yeah so where do you think they wound up then I had kind of a weird thought, which was, um, at some point, Treebeard asks Marion Pippin, he's like, have you seen the Antwives anywhere? <laughs> and that kind of, uh, like, get put together with the description of this, like, farming and agricultural style of, like, land, I was like, maybe they are in the Shire, because that's the land that we've seen that closely maps to that description of just, like, a plentiful garden and, yeah. like, very, you know, agricultural and farming heavy and things like that. And I was like maybe they're there <laughs> um, because we know that they like crossed i i don't know how the geography of this world works we know they crossed the anduin <laughs> at some point and then they went into the brown lands yeah right? the brown lands and i don't know like where that is in relation to the shire but yeah my, my thought was like that question that treebeard asked kind of sparked the thought in me like what if they are and that's actually why nobody has heard of them or heard where they are because like the hobbits are secreting away the Shire from the rest of the world. Like, nobody knows they exist. Right. Yeah, it could be. I think they died. I don't know. It it, it doesn't make sense that they're just kind of out there and nobody's heard from them at all. (laughs) Maybe they became trees somewhere. Yeah, Yeah. or maybe they they became farms. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) What? is just a walking tree and Entwife is just a full farm walking around. <laughs> the Entwives are all secretly that one transformer that just turned into like a full F1 track. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, he's not a car. He's the entire racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, the Entwives became hydroponic farms, and they moved to the Netherlands. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, but that does actually... My thought was that the Entwives are described as much more humanoid than the Ents are, or at least, like, humanoid in some ways, because they're described as having, like, blonde hair and rosy cheeks. Yeah, they're blonde. Isn't that funny? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did move to the Netherlands, but... I kind of wondered, like, the Ents were very much into, like, the wild growth of things in nature. And so they tend to go tree-ish. And the Entwives are very much into farming and order and agriculture. And so I kind of wondered, okay, so do they go human-ish? Do they turn into people Instead of into trees, like as they change and evolve, do they become sort of more like people rather than more like trees? And so now they just don't recognize each other. No, I like that, though. I think I like how many things Tolkien just like leaves unexplained. Yeah. I like that this is a mystery. But I do like the idea that the Entwives, who are who are much more like in a way, interested in the industrial aspect of, like, yeah. of trees and plants, kind of similar to the way that people are, mm-hmm. just became people. Yeah. And now they can't find them because they're people. <laughs> yeah, they, they look really different. Yeah. <laughs> Treebeard is, like, looking for his sexy aunt wife, and, like, she's just a woman now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're just huge, they're huge blonde people. Like, they're they're all in ABBA now. <laughs> Where are the Entwives? ABBA. <laughs> yeah, take a chance on tree. <laughs> all right, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. Brarum. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, to Sneha, and to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. I straight up did not realize, like, in the movie that, like, when he says Bararum, that that, that's the word for orcs. Wait, it is? Oh! (laughs) Oh, (laughs) dude!